Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. <laughs> Here's a, sh- a shared haiku. Nutrition for the first day of school for parents. Nutritious lunch, check. Backpack, school supplies, check, check. Tears, no. Just pollen. I think Bootsy <laughs> took another good snack day one. Really? Yeah, the Z-bar. <laughs> he ate his own, and then he took someone else. No, no, he couldn't find his own because mom put it in the small patch. I think he just took just, another kid's. Good for him. So be aggressive yeah, right away. Kindergarten's late. <laughs> the Tony Kornheiser Show is on now. Today we'll complete Bootsy's first full week of kindergarten. How's it going? Uh, he's a changed young man. He seems older. He's taller. I mean, he's seen things. Kindergarten, it's, this is real school. Mom went to back-to-school <laughs> night. There's no free play. It's just straight academics? Straight, straight phonics all day long. Okay. He loves it. He keeps talking about a robot that switches back and forth from letters to numbers. We are so grateful that he has transitioned to real school so happily, although every day when you do drop-off, he's still doing the holding your hand. He takes everything in. He knows he can tell you exactly what every kid is wearing each day doesn't know their names yet um and we've had no more snack incidents that's great uh he is downgraded from the full z bar to a sesame street uh granola bar which i think is easier to identify he could have a career you know those commercials those jimmy john's commercials where the guy uh lets the air out of all the tires yeah Yeah, he could do that (laughs) i mean he you know if he's gonna start stealing food early that's a good way to go um i'm gonna start with the tennis i did something i never do i watched Women's doubles last night, uh, you know, because Serena is compelling. Sally Jenkins will be on in a little while to talk about Serena. Serena and Venus, um, they lost. It doesn't matter. It was just entertaining. I, I didn't really care about it one way or the other. But it was something I did. On the tennis circuit, let me commend to people a front-page story today by Liz Clark about retirements in tennis. It's a really good story in the Washington Post. I think people will enjoy it. And I went back and forth last night between the Nats, and this was an, an extraordinary thing for me. The Nats had a 4 o'clock game yesterday because Thursday is traditionally getaway day, and they're playing Oakland, and Oakland has to get out of town. And so they accommodate the teams who have to get out of town by starting early, sometimes on Thursdays, getaway day, so that you can play a Friday game if you don't have Thursday off. And at about 7 o'clock or 10 to 7 or so, I said, oh, the Nats, maybe they're still on. It's a 4 o'clock start, so I'm anticipating around three hours. They're only in the seventh inning. They are down at that point, I think, by one run. I, I'm, I'm not sure of the order of the numbers, but I know the Nats caught up and forced it to go into a tenth inning. All right, Kyle Finnegan pitched the ninth. He escaped unscathed, had a good inning, and then the Nats go into the... Extra innings. In the extra innings, as people know, for the second or third year in a row, a runner starts on second base. You get a free runner at second base. A lot of teams like to bunt them over and then try and sacrifice them in. When you play in the Nats, you don't have to do that because Hunter Harvey is on the mound. And Hunter Harvey is consistently throwing 99 and 100. Like virtually every pitch is 99 and 100. He doesn't do anything else. He doesn't throw slow curveballs. He doesn't throw change-ups. He comes at you 99 to 100. And the problem is, if you can time that and foul those pitches off, you get deep into a count, which is what happened last night. And he walked somebody, and somebody else got on. And then somebody uh, on Oakland hit a ball to right field that hit the top of the wall. It missed being a home run by an inch. 
He hit the top of the wall and came back. And so now it's a two-run lead. So they're in the bottom of the 10th. Hunter Harvey has failed, totally failed. And they're in the bottom of the 10th. And Oakland has its closer or one of its closers on the mound. And I think, again, you start with somebody on second base. And, and then, and I'm not being specific on this because I don't quite remember. The Nats were down to two outs. They had gotten one run in. They had somebody on second and somebody on first. I think Lane Thomas was on first because he walked. And somebody else was on second, and I don't know how he got to second, but it doesn't matter. Joey Manessis gets up. Folk this hero. Is, huh? Folk hero. This is the kid. He's not a kid. He's 30 years old, who's been in the minor leagues until last month, until August, had been in the minor leagues his entire career. He has not been in the Nats organization his entire career. He's had other teams look at him and say, no, you are wanting, son. You are not good enough. We're not going to bring you up. He wasn't even brought up in the September call-ups. The first time he ever got to the major leagues was last month with the Nats, a desperate team, the worst team in baseball. This guy delivers a home run. It's the Nats, and this was, I don't know that this is extraordinary, but it struck me as extraordinary, to have played 120 games and not had a single walk-off situation. It's the first one for the Nats, obviously the first one for, for Manessis, a home run. He had like four hits last night. He's batting 350. He's been in the lineup, Michael, every day for three weeks at least. Yeah. He's batting 350. He's the best player on the team at the moment. Yeah. When he- I mean, Ru- Kbert Ruiz is the best player, but this guy at the moment is the best player on the team. What is the scouting services that other teams have used that denied him? Act- what has he done differently? What This guy is a great story. You'd like to find out how does this happen. He's 30, right? Power of baseball. I mean, in a lost season, this is what you're looking for that brings you some joy about a team that is an absolute dumpster. But if, yeah. you're, if you're being realistic, you, you talk about Ruiz. He is tracking where you think he should track. This story that comes completely out of nowhere, you go, how is it that nobody in your scouting department could, to, could predict this? But it's not the Nats. He was with other teams. He just got, didn't he yeah. just get to the Nats? Yeah. Can, Nigel, can you look him up? Does he have a history with other teams, other organizations? He's going to be, I don't know how long he will stay in the majors. I don't know if he will be in the majors all next year, but he's going to get a contract. He's going to get a major league contract, and it's not going to be less than two years. He's going to get two years of major league money. It's not going to be a lot of money by major league standards. It might not even be a million dollars a year, but it's going to be a lot more than he was making when he was getting on a bus in the minors for 10 years, trying to sustain himself any way that he can. He's going to get major league money. This is, this is the, the, the thing in Bull Durham. He's in the show. Yeah, and when you, yeah. Talk about, you know, when you talk about J-Rod's extension, when you talk about the Soto offers, when you talk about where Judge is going to end up and go, like, th- these, are the, these are the powerful stories of baseball. This is a great story. I, I mean, I know that, that the Washington Post fairly consistently does a we are surprised by Joey Manessis story. But there ought to be a deep dive into this guy's career. I, I don't know. I, I don't so, know if he's a good talker, but it, it, he's been in the minors for 10 years. What do you got? So he, he came up, he played with the, the Braves and their farm system from 2011 through 2017. The Braves they know, know what they're, what they're doing. <laughs> they know what they're right. doing. Okay. Um, 
Then he went to the Phillies, uh, signed a minor league deal with them. Played they know the 2018 se- season with their um, with the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. Wasn't sure that was their name. Uh, right. Then went then went to Japan, played for the Oryx Buffaloes. Then came back and played uh, in the with the Red Sox um, in their AAA team. And then it, uh, was a, became a free agent uh, last year in November and signed with the Nationals last January. How old so, yeah. is he? How old is he's, he right now? He's he's 30 years old. Yeah. He's been in the minors for 10 years, or Japan, or wherever he's been. He's been, when you're in the minors, I don't want to romanticize it. It's a hard life. Oh, you yeah. don't have any money at all. I mean, you're living with three other people, renting rooms places, yep. you know, taking scraping by. You're taking the bus all the time. They don't fly anyplace. It's no. not, you know, I think I read that, that he had a problem that they don't even have a lot of bats in the minor leagues. So you have to sort of repair your own bat. And when he got up to the... <laughs> majors and he found all the bats in the rack it was like you know it was in ecstasy he's batting 350 <laughs> right in, against story, major yeah. league pitching he's batting 350 and this is the first time he ever got a chance and he only got a chance michael because the nats are terrible meaningful baseball for the nats in september because of him right they, they, they're terrible so they'll try anything they're not contending they have no important games they bring this kid up and they stick him out there and now they can't get him out of the lineup nobody can I, it's, and, he's a great story and you think you know sort of the life-changing event that this will be if he can just sign a one-year deal or something like that that sort of money Compared to what he was going to make in the minor leagues, it's just a, it really is a terrific story. Did you listen to the show? I think I said that 45 <laughs> seconds ago. <laughs> I, think he, I think I said he's going to probably get at least a two-year deal. I just had a few late nights. It's not yes. going to be, you know, he's not going to make a tremendous amount of money, but relative no. to what he had made. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, he could get, he could get a two-year, five to six million dollar package. That That's changes his life. Yeah. Absolutely changes. Well, this whole, and he deserves it. Yes, yes, he does. He's again, can I say this again? He's batting 350. He hit a walk-off home run last. How many hits did he have last night? You got a box there? Uh, yeah, it was four, hits. four. I think it was four for six. Yeah, because he, he drove in a run hits. early. So, and once once yeah. you get once you get that uh, validation, then it just continues where you get picked up and you get you know you become a rental and you you extend your career by one or two more years. Now it is possible that people have no tape on him at all. How would they? He's been in the minor leagues, and they just say to a pitcher, "Yeah, when this guy comes up, see what you can do with him." Um, and, and now they'll get tape on him, and now somebody will prepare pitchers to pitch to Joey Manessis, which is a great honor for Joey Manessis. It, it really is. But it is possible that he's a major league hitter. It's possible that even with tape, even with people paying attention to him and trying to get him out, it's possible he's a 270 major league hitter. And 270 is going to keep you in a league for three to five more years. All you have to do yeah. is give a kid a bat. Yeah, yep. it's just, <laughs> so watch it them, last night. I mean, it was just, exactly. you wa- I'm watching this last night, and it's, it's storybook time. He hits it out, you know? He hits it out. And by the way, Coco, I don't know where Bob Carpenter is. I have no idea. But Coco's very good doing games. He's very enthusiastic. He and, and He likes Branson, the other guy. They get yeah, along very well. They do. Which they did when, he, uh, when Kevin was playing. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So, so I get the, the cool thing about all this is there's actually reasons for us to text about baseball again. I'm sitting in the dark. I think I'm on verse three of Hallelujah for the second or third time to the hammer. Yeah. And I'm getting these excited texts about the, uh, the walk-off. <laughs> yeah. So it's really good. Okay. That, that's my open. I don't really have anything else. I recommended the Liz Clark story, and I talked a little bit about the tennis. Serena goes tonight. Well, I don't know if she goes tonight. Yeah, she I does. think they were trying to fool around with the schedule to make her oh. go tonight. I would never, ever, if I were the U.S. Open, I would never, 
ever not put her on in the featured match at night. Oh, yeah. No, I, I expect she is. I can look at the schedule. but I, She draws I, I a crowd. Like, oh, yeah. It's been a packed house at Ash every her single Her crowd draws her. a crowd. The, yeah. The lingering shots of Tiger. <laughs> Tiger's <laughs> arms. Tiger's arms were unbelievable. <laughs> Tiger looks like a bodybuilder. He, can't, he obviously first, can't do anything with his the legs. First, uh, you know, fist pump I've seen from him in years. Tiger looked great. Yeah, yeah I've, looked, got, I've got her on the schedule at uh, 7 o'clock tonight at Arthur Ashe Stadium. So they ought to just put that in permanently. She's on <laughs> at 7, even when she's knocked out of the tournament. You put her on at 7 because she will draw a crowd. Is the tribute from the other night still just running in the background? That's what happens all with the Gail <laughs> King thing or Queen Latifah. just goes on and on and on. Yeah, um, yeah and that's so demoralizing for an opponent. Oh, sure. I, I mean, the opponent is like – you expect somebody to say to the opponent – Hey, meat, get over here. <laughs> get out there and just lose. Hey, meat. All right, we'll take a break. Uh, Sally, when we return? Yes, that's right. Sally's there. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Me, Joe Arrow, and Brandon Costello. Met Nigel downtown to pull a bank job. Have you heard? <laughs> we entered the bank. The distractions commenced. Joe Arrow sang Broadway tunes with different words. Brandon Costello showed his paperwork. They said, you changed your name. He said, that's what I do. They said, you've been Brandon Boker, Brandon Costello, Elvis Costello, Lou Costello, and Frank Costello, too. I sang them a song. It contained a very long list of other banks. They looked confused. I pulled a gun made out of soap. <laughs> then Nigel burst in, said, it's tea time, laddies. Tied all the employees up with a yardstick and a rope. Joe Arrow sang Luck Be a Baby from the bank president's seat. Costello posted selfies of stolen cash and his bare feet. I sang protest songs about Dave Roberts while Nigel scanned the walls. Changes into Chino suit to a rust-colored one for fall. We might have got away with it. We did it by the book. But then the cops came, Liz, Frankie, did Saliza, Louis, Gluck. They tied us up with Nigel's yardstick and his rope. Venmo us in jail, it's free. Use the code. Don't be a dope. The brilliant Dan Byrne <laughs> who writes, hope you like the song. If you want to be our wheel man, I'll write you into the next song. Brilliant. Plays in Sally Jenkins. Let me just say this about Sally Jenkins for a second. Sally, as you know, is my friend and a great, great, great writer. Sally has been killing people for a couple of years now, just killing people. She's been killing Dan Snyder. She's been killing the NCAA. Lately, she's been killing the Saudi tour. Sally's now excited about something. You're so excited about Serena Williams. It's so wonderful. Describe your mood when you sit down to write about her. 
Oh, delight, you know, absolute delight. Who couldn't be? I mean, she's almost 41 years old. Her kid turned five yesterday. She's had a C-section and two pulmonary embolisms, and she's out there, you know, just killing people. It's great. It's great. She she speaks to me, Tony. She kills people, and I kill people. Yeah, I understand <laughs> that. I was saying before that even should she lose, the next night you should put her out there at 7 no matter what. It doesn't matter. She's drawing a crowd. She's 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 the biggest ticket at the moment in New York City. What is the effect you you think on the tournament to have her like this? You know, I didn't think the U.S. Open could get sort of any more enormous. It's already such a big event. I mean, the stadiums are huge, and you know, she drove up ratings eighty percent the other night. Yeah. Um, and you can't. You literally in the plaza at the. Um, the Billie Jean King Tennis Center, you got, like at times you have to turn sideways to move. Uh, it's just packed out there. I mean, people are coming out just with a grounds pass, even if they can't get into a stadium, and they're watching on that those big TVs out in the plaza. It's uh, it's great, you know. It's it's the, the Open is always sort of a big Broadway occasion, but she's just jacked it up, you know. She really has. We were talking about this yesterday off air during PTI. And someone made the comment that they're going to put Venus and Serena on television playing doubles and asked me what I thought about it. I said, what do I think about it? You should do it every hour. I mean, are you kidding me? That This is the biggest. I sat there and watched that last night. And by the way, doubles is a much more vicious, faster game than I ever remember it being. It was really fun to watch. And I would imagine that everybody there who gets to watch Serena and or Venus and Serena, goes home happy, don't you think? I think very happy. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fast-paced, the doubles, especially the Ooh. way they play it, you know. I mean, two big serves and, and those big swinging yeah. volleys that Serena hits. I mean, she really takes a big old wind-up and cut at the ball, even when she's, when she's volleying, you know. So that's, she's just all about, you know, real palpable power. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a blast to watch. I mean, you know, it's just... She just rears back and like, blam, you know? It reminds me, and, and again, I know if they have a brain in their heads, they will put her on, as long as she's in this tournament, they will put her on at night. And it reminds me of Jimmy Connors. The year was whispered into my ear last night because I thought it was the late 80s. But it was 1991. When Jimmy Connors, I believe, turned 37 during the Open and was done. He was basically done. Except they put him on at night every single session that he stayed out there. He became the werewolf of center court, and he went all the way to the finals. I, me personally, I don't think Serena can win this, although you, knew, you could convince me otherwise down the road. I don't think so. But I would keep putting her out there every single night because this, this now feels like the last one, doesn't it? Like, because there's, there's some triumph in this. This feels like the exit, doesn't it? Oh, very much so. And I think, that, you know, as vague as she was in Vogue magazine, I don't think there's any question this is it. I mean, everything she said around it is is pretty firm. I mean, you know, she just, yeah, this is it. And um, I think Connors was 39, actually. Really? And uh, I, Yeah, I was at that tournament. I was at a couple of those night matches. And I was thinking just yesterday, this is the only thing that, re that comes close to that. I mean, that's the category that, you know, she's in with her performances. And, and that felt huge at the time. But this, is, this really is bigger. I mean, the crowd noise, anyone who's covered a lot of opens will tell you they've never heard crowd noise like this. There's a different decibel and a different depth, uh, 
it's louder, it's deeper, and it's, you know, it literally feels like something coming out of a jet engine. She said she feels it in her chest, you know, when she walks out there, like the vibration. I was, you know, I've been straining for like three days now to sort of say, okay, what does it sound like? You know, it sounds like a rock slide. It sounds like uh, a tidal wave. It sounds like, you know, the North Atlantic Ocean in December. I mean, it, there's, it's hard to describe how it sounds, really. I've got to say this. Um, one of the reasons I thought she would win the first match and one of the reasons I thought she would beat the number two woman in the world, who, by the way, has never won anything, one of the reasons was because I don't think that these other women have any idea what it is like to be out there with a crowd that hates you, that cheers <laughs> only when you screw up and Serena wins another point. I think this is potentially temperamentally devastating. What do you think? I absolutely agree. I mean, first of all, uh, Contevi said that she wasn't really prepared for the way Serena raised her game in, in the third, third set. set. Yeah. Third set, yeah. Which, which is what the, the true greats really do. I mean, you face a different player in a third set than you faced in the first and second set. They have, they have a way of, they have a, a fourth gear of, you know, that, uh, other players don't see coming. And that's exactly what happened to the number two player in the world who's not used to being number two and no. facing a creature like Serena Williams, number one. And number two, yeah, Chris Clary of the New York Times had the best line. He said that even when the crowd clapped for Contevit, he said it, it sounded like a golf clap. Absolutely. I mean, they, you know, even trying to be polite. I mean, they want her, they want her to not get a single point. They want right. her to hit every return into the net or long. They cheer mistakes because they are so wrapped up in Serena Williams. She has 23 of these things. I don't think there's anybody left in the draw who's got more than two. I don't think so. She's got 23 of these things, which leads to this question. Why can't she win? Oh, she can. Especially against you believe the competition. That? You believe she I can? I do believe it. Okay. I do believe it. I do believe it. I did not necessarily believe it last year or the year before, uh, because now here's what she's going to have to do to win. She's going to have to beat an, an opponent who makes her uncomfortable. The people she's played so far have been big hitters, big power hitters, and she eats that for lunch. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the people who have given her trouble in the last couple of years have been very handsy, very crafty players with a lot of spin and a lot of drop shots and a lot of short angles, and the that's the stuff that I've watched her, you know, have a little trouble defeating in a final match. So it, she's going to need a little luck in terms of who she plays, you know, and how they play her. Uh, but if, you know, she, you know, she keeps playing like this and, and she can keep her game up this way for four more matches, no question she can win it. You know, I, I, don't, I don't see why not, particularly because, as you say, there's not a big depth of experience out there in terms of, winning grand slams. For God's sake, last year, the winner of the U.S. Open was a qualifier. Raducanu was yeah. a qualifier last year. Yeah. And she went out in the first round. There's a lot of women in the last five years who've won one or two majors who then get bounced out early on the next two or three majors. That has happened consistently and never happened with Serena. If I was playing Serena, I would, I would absolutely try to keep her on the court as long as possible. She's going to be 41 in an hour and a half. You know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't let her stand there and hit hard. I'd make her move all the time, and I would think I would tire her out and beat her. Isn't that the strategy? 
Yeah, and I think as much as anything, you have to tire her out mentally uh, by annoying her. You know, <laughs> yeah. She, she, you know, the, the short balls, the the, the short, the, the the slices. You know, she, um, you know, Mergeruza, who beat her in the Open final a couple couple of years ago. I'm forgetting exactly which year, but she, you know, she sliced and diced her. You know, and um, and after a while, Serena gets a little impatient with that because she can't generate as much power and she can't really generate kind of the winners uh, that she likes to, you know, she she can't just drive you off the court with that. So, you know, I think something like that could take her down. But also the other thing that could take her down is the fact that at 41, like you say, or on the cusp of 41, you just, there are days when you wake up and your body just doesn't, the engine just won't start and you can't, uh, you can't find it, you know. The, the body can betray you a little bit over seven matches, and that's what happened to Chris Everett um, in 1989, another tournament I was at. Everett had a great run to the quarterfinals. She was beloved. It was pandemonium. The crowds uh, were around her so were so heavy and thick that uh, at one point Martina Navratilova couldn't even get her match. She had to have help getting through the crowds for Chrissy. Well, maybe and, she could have um, taken that dog with her to clear the way. <laughs> and Tyson. <laughs> exactly. But Chrissy comes out and she beats Monica Sellish. It's the last great match of her career. I mean, she just blows Sellish off the court. It's one of the more masterful displays of tennis I ever saw ever give. And then she comes out in the quarterfinals against Dina Garrison, an opponent that she could have and should have beaten and just didn't have anything left. I mean, it was all of a sudden it was empty. And yeah. you realized, okay, she'd been playing on an eighth of a tank, and it just the needle just hit empty. Yeah. And that could happen here. It could it could be that Serena's playing on the last little you know inch of gas in the tank and the last fumes, and you just don't know when that needle's gonna gonna slide below the empty uh, the empty mark. So it's gonna be so interesting, but it's so great in the meantime, you know, to to be there. It's such an occasion, and. Uh, and by the way, can we just stop saying Margaret Court's name ever again as one of the best players, you know, as the best player in history? She was a I very, mean, very great player for a brief amount of time who won 11 Australian Opens. And yeah. in, 1960, in the 1960s, before Open Tennis, when the fields yeah, had like right. 12 people in them. <clears throat> that's right. All that's amateurs. Right. I mean, well, it's, okay. not, it's not even, it shouldn't even be a comparison. And by the way, in two of those 24 Grand Slam uh, finals, her opponents retired, and she didn't even play a full final. So oh, I didn't really, realize she that. Has, to me, she should have 22. So I mean, well, think- let me go into this for a second, because you mentioned Chris Cleary before. He um, wrote a big piece I read the other day in the New York Times about the GOAT thing. Me personally, because of my age and because of what I have seen, um, I would say, and I'll rank them in alphabetical order, Everett, Groff, King, Navratilova, Williams, those five, I believe you could throw a blanket over them, and if you picked one and I picked another, it would be okay. But in my mind, Martina Navratilova is the greatest player of all time, not Serena Williams. That's just in my mind. What about in your mind? So that's a complicated question for the simple reason that Everett and Navratilova have 18 Grand Slam titles each, and in most of them, they had to face each other. Each other, yes. And... So I count them as having uh, 36 <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> I count Everett Navratilova as one player with 36 majors. Like, 
it, when you play that intellectual game. Because I don't know of any other great champion in the sport who had to do that, who had to, in order to win another Grand Slam title, uh, had to go through literally one of the top three players of all time. Right, um, right. Uh, uh, either in a semifinal or final, you know. I mean, Court and, and, and Billie Jean, Billie Jean and Margaret Court had a great rivalry, but they didn't really play each other very often. They only played each other in two or three finals, I think, for Grand Slam titles. And, and Groff did not have to play Celis all the way through because of Gunter Parch. Yeah, I mean, so imagine if Borg and McEnroe had had to play each other 36 times for Grand Slam titles. Right. Right? I mean, yeah. that's... I mean, Everett Navratilova really, in my mind, among other things, is the greatest sports rivalry of all time because of the, the disparate styles, because of the energy on the court when they played. I mean, their Everett's last two French Open victories in 1985 and 1986 are two of the most riveting. And then, and then her U.S. Open loss in 86, those three matches, the tennis in those, go back and watch them. Uh, pull them up on your screen. Even today, the tennis is just absolutely gripping. It's, it holds up, you know. So so there's that aspect of the question uh, that's really kind of peculiar that gets in the way for me of saying that, that Serena is outright the greatest ever because I don't think Serena had to play a Navratilova or an Everett every time out. You know, that's the only that's the only divot I can take out of her historical legacy. You should write that. Because I, I, I think that I, there's this assumption, because people stand up and scream it, that Serena is the greatest of all time. And, well, she and, is. I mean, she is numerically. Of course, if she wins no this, question. if she yeah. wins this at 40, basically at 41 years old, I, I'll yield on this one. I really will. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, mean I, I just think that's interesting. I do. Well, yeah. And, and by the way, Everett and Navratilova, neither one of them ever made a Grand Slam final after pregnancy a C-section. I mean, there's right. a remarkability to what she's doing physically. Uh, you know, she's Tom Brady in the sense of she's creating a really a new template of, of what, you know, physical recovery can be, what, what the age envelope can be for athletes. You know, there's the idea now that you have to retire in your, I mean, Everett went at um, 33, I think, Navratilova went at 38. Um, the idea that you know you have to go in your thirties, I think, is over. I think, I think Serena has changed that one. It's so I'm so happy to hear you excited like this. I just think it's <laughs> wonderful. Great. I mean, no, you. I don't always kill people. I don't really kill people. I just you do. It's like you know what Harry Truman. Everybody said give him hell, Harry, and he said I don't give him hell. I just tell the truth, and they think it's hell. <laughs> it's a good line. It's a good line. I'll talk to you That's, soon. I Thanks, Sal. I don't kill people. I just tell the truth. That's, Thank you, Sally. <laughs> Sally you, Jenkins, Tony. boys and girls. Wonderful. We will have Chuck Culpepper. It's an all-Washington post day. Chuck Culpepper, when we return, I'm Tony Kornheiser. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua, and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter, and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film, and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is Ralph Rulin. He writes, I'm a longtime local singer and musician. I've been performing at various venues throughout the DMV and along the East Coast for quite a few years, more than I care to elaborate on. I've always greatly appreciated you playing my songs in the past. 
which is a thrill for me and my loyal little friends. I, too, am a loyal little. Thoroughly enjoy listening to the podcast, which is entertaining and informative. Thank you. And yes, I do use the code. This is called Just Feeling Fine. And again, this is Ralph Rillen. This is quite good. Michael, if people like Ralph Rillen want to send in their original music for us to play, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at tonykornizershow.com. Chuck Culpepper joins us now. We could have talked to Chuck Culpepper about tennis because he knows tennis, but we talked to Sally about the tennis. And we'll talk to Chuck about college football. I understand you are going to Ohio State for the Ohio State-Notre Dame game. I would imagine that's something to be excited about. And as I was talking to Pat Forty the other day, I have the same feelings now. How did they schedule a game like that as an opener? How did they get these teams to agree to it? Well, they've got they've got it coming back next year to to South Bend as a as a fourth game. I think it is for uh-huh. for uh, so that's a you know it's late in September next year. So so yeah, that is a that is an oddity. And then there's something even odder about it, which is that you know those um, those when big recruits have their signing ceremonies in in the high school gyms. And, yeah. And, and there's this linebacker from suburban Dayton, Ohio in 2003 had his, and it was Marcus Freeman who oh, has three yeah. caps in front of him. One's Ohio state, one's Notre Dame and one's Michigan. And he picks the Ohio state one, but he's now coaching the new head coach of one of the, the other caps. So, you know, it, there's a lot of really unusual things about this. And I think, the idea that it's the opener is going to make it that's going to make it even harder for Notre Dame. It's it's a very very tall ask for them at this point, I think. Um it would be fantastic for Notre Dame to win this game if I were Marcus Freeman and this was my first regular season game as a coach, I would say to my AD, "You're killing me. What are you doing to me?" Right? Right and and the the AD course there today is it was there in 2014 which is when this this game was arranged um yeah i think it's and 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 then throw on that you know a quarterback in his first first big start uh tyler buckner and i i think you know he's he's uh he's from southern california from san diego uh he wound up his career at the same high school that like alex smith and reggie bush went to and now he's. I think he missed his senior year because of COVID, uh, and now he's come to this. And he was back up last year, and this is he's going to go into the horseshoe for his first game. So this just looks really. I mean, yes, like you were saying, I'm going. I'm excited. The names are big, you know. But this just really looks like, you know, being led to slaughter. Now, this is the kind of game that if Ohio State shows well, and I'm not saying they will. I don't know anything about either team. But if Ohio State shows well, and you're a voter, you're going to vote them ahead of Alabama next week at number one, don't you think? Absolutely. And one of the best things about this system that's been in place for this will be the ninth season uh, with the committee is that the committee has shown big respect for scheduling like this. And so, you know, obviously the committee won't get into it yet, not until late October, but, you know, this is this is the kind of game that all along through the years should have, you know, flipped rankings. And now it's done more than, than it used to be done. It used to be, you know, your preseason number one, you keep winning and nothing changes, but yes, even though Alabama's considered one of the greatest 
favorites ever this year with a Heisman winner and then and then a linebacker who's probably even a better football player than anybody in the country. That it, it should be one of those occasions, yes, when when Ohio State, if they win impressively, yeah. they should move ahead. I agree. Uh, by the way, the adventure scheduling continues. Oregon and Georgia. I mean, not, that's, you know, the Georgia's the defending national champion. Oregon is now coached by somebody who coached at Georgia, right, with Kirby Smart, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Um, right. And Oregon has, Oregon has the kid from Auburn, Bo Nix, right. at, at quarterback, which I guess leads me to this. I think a lot of people out there think that the uh, name, image, and likeness will have a greater effect on college sports than anything else. I don't. I think it's the transfer portal. People wake up on a Tuesday, and by Wednesday, they're at another school. I, I just find the shuffling of players to schools amazing. Do you think that there will be any attempt to sort of narrow this? I don't think so. I think the players have have gotten their measure of power that they you know, didn't have for 100 years. And I, I agree with every every vowel and consonant of that, that the NIL is not as big a thing it's as not. the transfer uh, portal. And, you know, last night there was a game between Pitt and West Virginia, rivalry game in which both starting quarterbacks had quarterbacked at USC already during their <laughs> careers. You know, it's, it's really something, and it's something people aren't used to. And this makes me think about Kentucky basketball, which is where, you know, when – John Calipari went to the one and done uh, for you know for so many years, and the, some of the fans I knew quite a, quite a few of them in fact. What they missed was really getting to know the players and know the intricacies of their personalities and their games. They felt like they knew them after say four years, five years of watching them, and I think that's what's being lost in this. Even though we all would agree, I think that it's it's an American, very American thing that you get to go to the school you want to when you want to. I, I, I agree with it in principle, but it is such a wow. When I found out the other day that the Oregon quarterback was Bo Nix, I yeah. said, well, he must be 26 years old by now. Hasn't yeah. he played, hasn't he used up his eligibility and he's got this one more year and they just, they fly around like mosquitoes. They're just going from school to school. They're alighting for 10 minutes and going someplace else, right? Right. And, you know, you look at, I mean, these are extremely well-traveled 21-year-olds in a lot of cases. You look at Caleb Williams, now out at USC, was a high school quarterback in Washington, D.C., and then at Oklahoma. He's got just one more continental time zone left to live in before he (laughs) finishes college you know he's got three out of four already so yeah it's really disorienting yeah there are two things in college sports that are of enormous consequence one is the transfer portal and the other is the wild moves in the conferences do you expect anything upcoming are you hearing anything about other conferences other schools moving because when you Come on, when USC and UCLA join the Big Ten, you have to sit down and try to absorb that. That's amazing. It is, and I don't, I don't know if that wasn't the, the moment that, that kind of I've, – I've always followed college sports. I've always loved it, college football especially. For me, it's like 
growing up in the South was the signal that the harsh summer was ending and much more than that. And, but that move, I've always liked the idea that you had one region playing here and one region playing over here, and then occasionally they get together and, and measure the regions, regions against each other. So the idea that, that they're going to be in the Big Ten and it stretches from you know, Westwood in West L.A. all the way to Rutgers is kind of intimate college park is it just kind of fundamentally changes something for me. It's almost as if the sport and college sports are kind of shedding their charms in a way. I agree with that. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I, I know that there is for me something fundamentally wrong with this new alignment. I mean, I can live with Oklahoma and Texas going to the SEC, and I can sort of bemoan the end of the Big Eight, which happened 100 years ago, which I thought was a, the, I thought was the best football conference of them all at one point. But when you cover the entire country, come on, enough is enough. When my school, when Binghamton, uh, in order to find a golf league, ends up you know, playing in, in the conference, what's that conference that starts in Utah and Montana? That's where they are in golf, like the big sky. There, that's where that's ridiculous. The big sky. There's no sky in Binghamton. There's always clouds. There is no sky. And when you have to do that, I believe that these conferences. I guess just because I grew up with them being geographically compact, I, I think that's the natural order of things, and that the natural order of things has been moved in a bad way. And I guess you agree. I do, and I, I think you know, Frank, the great Frank DeFord had this line in a in an essay he wrote one time said. Sports were never meant to be covered like NATO or the bond market. And I kind of feel like, you know, there's, it's just so much talk about business. Yeah. And this move was all business. Oh, yeah. It's so much more business than sports, you know, and something's lost in there. I hate to, I never wanted to be that guy who said that, but I, w I always wanted to try to adapt. But something's lost in that move. Oh, absolutely. And patient zero is Boston College. They're the worst. They started this whole thing, and now it can't be stopped. I'll get you out of here on this. I'll completely change gears because I know you've followed this. The Saudi tour and everything that's going on in golf. Cam Smith the other day, the most recent person to take the money, said, I, you know, it's not fair that we can't play the majors, which just seems to me to be at the heart of everything. That the heart of everything in golf is the ability to play in the majors. What do you see coming up? for everyone to play in the majors? I, I just get the sense that for a while at least, both of these tours are going to thrive to some degree. So it's, you know, both of them are going to be successful to some degree at least, and both of them are going to have access to the majors, I would say. I just can't see the majors you know, shutting out, especially when you get to Cam Smith. He's got exemptions for five years, having just won the British this year. So I just think for a while there might even be within the majors this kind of even entertaining pull between the two and to see, you know, which tour can do better. And it might even, dare I say, be helpful for the game a bit. I mean, I just think, yes, the majors are so powerful. This is concerned a lot of people that, that the majors are all anybody thinks about it's where all the legacies are built and everything. But I just see it as something where, at least for a while, they, they're still going to have access to it. I'll be surprised if they 
if they kind of get get shut out of that. And I'll be very curious to see if the format of the live tour, which is I just find absurd, really. Yeah. I'm just I'm just curious to see if somehow that diminishes them competitively. Oh, because they're only playing fifty four holes and not seventy two. No and cuts it, and no like, cuts and guaranteed like, money. Yeah, like Tiger was saying, why do you even practice? You know, back at the back in Scotland, he said that, and it's just, you know, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if it will, and they certainly perform well in at St Andrews, but I do just wonder if, you know, if playing in that kind of sort of it has an exhibition feel to it, the shotgun starts and all that. I don't know if over time that could take an edge off somebody. Thank you, Chuck. Pleasure to have you on the show. It's great Thank pleasure. Thank you, Tony, so much. Chuck Culpepper, boys and girls. We'll take a break, and uh, we will do email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews or coverage of all the biggest stories in the nba our new show is the place to be five days a week download and follow beyond the arc on apple podcasts spotify and wherever you get your favorite podcasts you're listening to the tony kornheiser show That was very low in my ear. What happened with that? Was there a problem with that? That's Brandon Costello. Was there anything, a problem? Is it just my headset? I think it was no. just your headset. I think that was the after hours version. Okay, because it's very, very low in my ear. Uh, Nigel, you want to do the Bethesda Bagel ad? Yes, Bethesda Bagels. We love them. You will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you'll be thrilled. All right, that'll just about do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl you love. It's only right. So happy together. Um, Those are the Turtles. Uh, I like the Turtles. Very happy, poppy little group, the Turtles. I believe they played at Trisha Nixon's wedding in the White House 50 years ago. I believe I have that right. Thanks to our guests today. Sally Jenkins and Chuck Culpepper. Thanks to today's sponsors, Electric E-Bike and Shopify. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple, please leave us a review. Uh, We will not do a show on Monday. We will do Tuesday. We'll do three shows next week, but Monday is Labor Day, and there's a golf tournament, and I'm going to play in it. Chance of rain. Chance of rain? Yep. Well, if it rains, then we'll do a show. <laughs> Big uh, bagel news. They were giving out gift cards today. I could, there were at least 30 people in line before open at 7 a.m. I could barely get oof. in. Thank you. Thank you to those customers who, who listened to my plea and let me enter the shop so I could pick up the bagels. Yes, and thank you to you for doing that. I do it all yes. for the show, Dad. From uh, TK Week 1, you're Johnny Oko. Check out the new, uh, the new lightweight hoodie, the Finney. TK Week 1. TK Week 1, all in. Bill in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Okay, I'll play. My phone pocket varies depending on the pant I'm wearing. Sometimes front left, but mostly back left. Hope this helps. From a haiku from Shad, 21 places is about Sean and all of his addresses. 21 places and all over the country. Fugitive, perhaps? From Josh in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. Did he really say 
there was enough liquidity to bet on women's water polo. Was that Jeff Ma Jeff saying Ma. that? Because he's a water polo guy. From Scott Hodgins um, in Dorchester in Ontario and Canada. I'm not going to question Greg Garcia's assertion that Freebie is in fact free, but I would remind you of the misguiding branding created by Next Day Blinds and Giant Foods. Just saying. <laughs> From Tyler Etchenkamp in Lincoln, Nebraska. Phone and chapstick in front right pocket, wallet and keys in front left pocket. Tell John Buchanan from Annapolis to eat it. From Patrick Sitter, a longtime emailer in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I've never been a fan of chocolate. When it comes to chocolate ice cream, I've always felt it tasted like, well, what it looks like. Despite that, guess what I just brought home from the grocery store? Yep, you guessed it. A carton of Tillamook mudslide ice cream. My wife, who loves chocolate, is very happy with the purchase. However, she's having a hard time understanding my recent obsession with Whoppers and fries. I keep telling her it's the power of the show, babe. It's the power of the show. From Matt in San Antonio, 19 permanent addresses, five countries, three United States states. I assume this is the new game. From Daphne. This is Daphne from Japan, just living and working here, not born and bred. This is my second post from Japan. You read my first one during the Olympics when I provided my personal observations of the crowds. I was thrilled you read my email, by the way. It made my day. I don't intend to make post from Japan a regular feature, though it does sound catchy, since I'm not so presumptuous as to think you would actually read my emails on a regular basis. And I'm also not normally one to jump on bandwagons, but I could not resist this one. Me and the man to whom I'm related by marriage were on a short vacation to Hiroshima. As we walked down one of the main thoroughfares called Hiroshima Hondori, I saw this Burger King sign, immediately thought of you and your DCBK experience. I told my husband I had to take a picture and send it to you. He didn't get the joke, but he humored me anyway. So for 550 to 650 Japanese yen on the King Value menu, you get what looks like to me a Whopper or a Bullseye Whopper or a Whopper Deluxe with a Coke and fries. At today's exchange rate, that's $4.02 to four seventy-five United States currency. Is that savings enough to get you to jump on a plane to Japan? I didn't think yeah, so, book it. but it's a fun thought. <laughs> From Nick Sharkey in Washington, D.C., but soon to be in Escanaba, Michigan. Am I being prescient in assuming the new game is the permanent address game? As of next week, when I leave D.C. for Michigan's Upper Peninsula, I will be at 22 permanent addresses, and hopefully I'll be buying a house soon thereafter, so I may get to 23 by year's end. Eat that, Sean. As the official data scientist of the Tony Kornheiser Show, I have some stats. Those 22 addresses have occurred over six states, 14 cities, and 42 years. It turns out the combo of undergrad and grad school, working in politics, and a marriage then divorce help rack up the count. I've also had a top-secret clearance, so knowing these addresses off the top of my head is pretty easy. If you're curious about each address, I can send them to Chuck Todd, and he can read them to you when he's on the show. One of them was on the other side of Rock Creek Park from you, and I still curse Military Road, but driving by Ingleside was always good for a laugh. <laughs> from Carl in Oswego, New York. So you decided to let Sean talk, and he immediately started a new game? Okay, I'll go. I've had eight different permanent addresses, not counting college dorms across two states, New York and West Virginia. I hope I'm playing the game right. Let me know. From Paul Dom in Washington, D.C. Stopped at Wendy's off I-81 in Pennsylvania last weekend on the way to Binghamton to visit family. Yes, that Binghamton. We ordered a double cheeseburger, a junior cheeseburger, and regular fries. Not the best or healthiest lunch we've had in a while. And the total came to 11.57. I immediately said to my wife, that can't be right. They forgot my burger. I guess your experience probably has to do with the higher real estate costs on Connecticut Avenue in D.C. compared to small town Pennsylvania. But anyway, thanks for making my drive through experience more stressful than necessary. Spicy chicken nuggets. Is that, so what you got to get at Wendy's. Is, yeah. The spicy nugs. 
Yeah, that's. Uh, but I, I'm just I get modifying the, the, yeah, just modifying okay. the order. Should we do one more? This is yeah, Jason sure. Smorrell again with an update on Lachizarine night. Getting closer. So I was catching up on old shows last week while driving my daughter to college. I'm usually a month or so behind. This Lachizarine night thing has screwed up my system, and now I have to listen to current episodes. I'll get over it. How surprised was I to hear Jake Hafner writing the mailbag commenting on your $13.27 Whopper and fries? He has time to randomly write, but no time to do his actual job of writing about Lachizarine night. Well, you get what you pay for. You'll be happy to know that as part of the promotion, we'll be raising the price of our hamburger and fry combo to $13.27, in addition to lots of other little nuggets of fun. There seems to be some confusion as to how this promotion is working. Please let the littles know to use the code. Yes, people, it's as simple as saying Lachizarine at the ticket window and you will get a free ticket. I've received a few emails from people asking how the night works my reply has been use the code i thought tba on the website would be funny as this show is literally the only place we are promoting the promotion this has been <laughs> lots of fun and we can't wait to meet the great dan Byrne and see how many lachiseries we get the new over under is set at 18 please tell people to use the code on wednesday september 7th and i will send an update after the night oh tell jake to eat it that's really good that's really good. We'll stop with that. If you're uh, out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white. But I still need a bit of milk, full fat, which I've warmed in the micro wave. Me, Joe Arrow, and Brandon Costello met Nigel downtown to pull a bank job. Have you heard? We entered the bank. The distractions commenced. Joe Arrow sang Broadway tunes with different words. Brandon Costello showed his paperwork. They said, you changed your name. He said, that's what I do. They said, you've been Brandon Boker, Brandon Costello, Elvis Costello, Lou Costello, and Frank Costello, too. I sang them a song, it contained a very long list of other banks. They looked confused, I pulled a gun made out of soap. Then Nigel burst in, said, it's tea time, laddies. Tied all the employees up with a yardstick and a rope. Joe Arrow sang, luck be a baby from the bank president's seat. Costello posted selfies of stolen cash and his bare feet. I sang protest songs about Dave Roberts while Nigel scaled the walls. Changes into Chino suit to a rust-colored one for fall. We might have got away with it. We did it by the book. But then the cops came, Liz, Frankie, Edith, Saliza, Louis, Gluck. They tied us up with Nigel's yardstick and his rope. Venmo us in jail, it's free. Use the code. Don't be a dope. Tonight's tonight.
Set it on fire 